Welcome to the Evoke Inspire podcast with me, Sarah Jane Tobin, proudly sponsored by hermoney.ie. Hermoney is your trusted partner in financial empowerment, catering specifically to professional and self-employed women. Join us as we dive into inspiring stories of entrepreneurship, personal growth, and the world of finance. Hermoney.ie's mission is to provide women with the knowledge, tools, and confidence to thrive financially and in life. This week, I'm joined by the Labour Party leader, Ivana Bacic. Not only is she one of the most forthright women in Irish politics, she herself has faced off many challenges and remains steadfast in her beliefs in spite of huge pressure and in some cases intimidation. Who would be a politician? So first off, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about your own career and how you actually got started on the political career path, because it's not something that I don't like. Is it something that you dream of when you're a little girl? (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. Well, that would be a bit odd, I think. I don't know. I don't know if people ever do dream of, of being in politics mm. uh, um, when they're children. But I certainly remember, even as a child, getting exercised about things. Now, my mum is a very strong feminist. And I think, okay. you know, I always say she is the biggest influence politically on me and always has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had, from a very early age, steeped in us all, there's four of us, two girls and two boys. So she'd mm-hmm. steeped in us all a sense of equality quality that girl that you know our brothers were as as doing as much work around the house as we were as chores and so Excellent. on so uh, so we had all of that sense and I do remember in like in, in national school I went to national school in West Cork we moved around a lot when I was a child and um, also all my national schooling was in the lovely Cladove National School in Cork but I remember the girls had to sit in and sew while the boys went out in the yard oh, wow. to play football and I just remember feeling that sense of injustice. And I must have been nine or ten. And you probably didn't even want to play football. You just it, wanted yeah, to be. Like, <laughs> you know. Well, I kind of did. But yeah, no, it was more the sense of not being allowed to. That yeah. was the issue. You're right. So it was that kind of feeling of just feeling passionately about things. And then in, in secondary school uh, in Dublin, where we were then moved to, um, you know, the 83 referendum was mm-hmm. when I was in in uh, what, what is now called Junior Cert, but was the Intercert in those days mm. and the uh, that referendum I just remember my mom was out campaigning on it against the amendment which yeah. of course inserted an equal right to life of yeah. the unborn with the pregnant woman and you know paved the way for 30 years of real repression of women um, and you know the, as we know and and the awful cases like the X case and, the, mm. and Savita Halapanover's death so that referendum was a sort of seismic time yeah. and I remember in school arguing passionately that we should be voting against it that women's life lives were worth more you know mm-hmm. and and but it may but I mean there was such a strong view at the time in the country that that the right of the unborn should be elevated in this way and should be protected this way looking back now after the repeal yeah. referendum in 2018 I think it's hard to believe it's probably hard for younger listeners to mm. appreciate uh, even for my students when I was teaching in Trinity it was hard to appreciate but that was at a time when contraception was illegal yeah you know my mum used to hand out condoms on the Key in Cork when we were living there with a small group of campaigners but you know but they were really ahead of their time yeah. so, so no my mum was the influence I felt passionately about issues so it wasn't that I was dreaming of being a politician per se but I really did feel I wanted to, to change things and I wanted to speak out and uh, when I went to college in Trinity then you know I got very politically involved very mm. early on and, and, and sort of from there really I have to ask you because obviously especially like for anyone who's listening who's a teenager who's kind of in the influential kind of stage of life who just wants to impress people and you know doesn't want to kind of be too outspoken or, or say something that's unpopular 
like, how did you manage that when you were growing up? Because it must have been difficult. And I'd say not just with your own peers, but with older people and with your teachers, that kind of thing. How did you, you know, maintain your stance? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I do see that now mm. with teenage daughters, that it is very difficult for girls, especially to speak out. Mm. And, I, and I think it was because of my mother and I'm, you know, and because I'm the oldest child, I had always had the sense that I need to speak out and that I don't want to see boys getting advantaged mm-hmm. over girls just because of gender. I mean, that's articulating it now. Obviously, mm-hmm. I wasn't articulating it then as a child or a teenager like that. But certainly when I went to Trinity, um, that's where I felt I really fitted in. I didn't fit in at school. You know, I, mm. I, I was a SWAT, first of all. So <laughs> I loved classes and learning and reading. And There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's but, how you got into Trinity. But you don't, yeah, yeah. But look, you know, it was, it was certainly only when I came to college that I really felt, oh, this, these are my, my this is my tribe, you know. Yeah. These are students who feel passionately about issues too. There's all sorts of different subcultures going on. Trinity in the late 80s, early 90s was just fantastic. It was like this bastion of liberalism uh, at a time when, you know, things were pretty bleak economically. Yeah. It was 20% unemployment. Uh, the Fianna Fáil government at the time was telling all of us, all our generation, that we would have to emigrate. There wasn't room on the island for us. There certainly uh. weren't the jobs. So it was a time when Trinity was just, college was just this space where you could be free, where, you know, homosexuality was still a criminal offence until mm. 1993 when I'd left college. But there was a really active gay sock in Trinity. So it was one of the, a place where you could be safe and free and it was and um, and you know I was elected to the students union in my final year to become president and I suppose the absolutely most um you know, cathartic time politically for me was that time because we were threatened with prison uh, by uh, a group calling itself SPUC, the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child. What? Because we were, uh, as a students' union, we, we were, were obliged, we were, um, our students had voted that we would give information on abortion to women who rang for it in crisis pregnancy. And again, it's such a different time, 89, 90, inf- it was even illegal to give information, to give a, a phone number of a British abortion clinic to a woman. And as president, my Myself and our deputy president, Gronya Murphy, we would sit in our student union office in Front Square, just through the arch in yeah. Trinity, if anyone knows it. I sit in that office, which was then called Mandela House, because we were trying to get Nelson Mandela <laughs> freed from Dublin. Um, but we would sit there and we would take calls every day from women and girls in desperation all around Ireland in crisis pregnancy who had nowhere else to turn, needed to terminate that pregnancy for a myriad of reasons mm-hmm. and couldn't even get the phone number of a clinic in England which would carry out the procedure. The, the Cosmopolitan and the women's magazines coming into Ireland, censored. Numbers of clinics taken out of those. Wow. We had an underground helpline, 794700 was the number and we used to chant it, we used to write it in the back of toilet doors. But for most women and girls, particularly in rural areas around Ireland, there was no way of getting that phone that's number. So absolutely, we were giving it out. Like that's mad. And I mean, I think like I remember when I was, I actually remember the last Magdalene Laundry closing it's See, like that was only, in only the 90s exactly so, like yeah. we have when you think of it like that we have come such a long way like were you ever genuinely concerned that you could actually be charged with an offence for for doing that oh yes yeah, yeah absolutely we were famously chased around front square by Gardaí looking to serve a notice of on us a summons on us for conspiracy to corrupt public morals if you would believe I mean wow. this is the dark ages as you say but, <laughs> but in the early even the early 90s yeah. in Ireland it was still pretty pretty grim for women's rights mm-hmm. and for gay LBG, LGBT rights too so you know we were 
our um, we had a, a lawyer, one of our I was studying law in Trinity, obviously, and one of our lecturers, Mary Robinson, wow. later to become president, <laughs> stepped in and represented us. But she said to us, you'll be going to prison. She represented you. She represented wow. us in court. And I she mean, said we'd, we'd be going to prison. So we had packed our bags and we were ready to go in to defy Spock. And because we said we won't stop giving information because we were the only place in Ireland still publicly op- willing to give the information. Everywhere else had closed down. The women's counselling centres had been closed. As I said, the underground helpline was operating, but they had no public space. And so the Trinity Students Union had become this bastion of, of, of information. And we were giving out a handbook to students which had information printed in it. And that's ultimately what, what got us uh, into court and threatened with prison. Now, Mary Robinson's amazing legal argument it, it enabled us to escape prison. Yeah, escape I was just going to say, what did she say? I mean, she, she, took up, she took up this really innovative line of law. And I mean, I always think of it, you know, and I thought of it years later when I was in practice myself as a barrister. It was it was really innovative. She went for a European law angle and she said the clinics in Britain are operating legally in accordance with European, you know, they're operating yeah. a legal service in another EU member state. And surely as a, as an, as another EU, EU, member EU member in Ireland, you have a right to give information about that service. Now, the European court and that argument was enough to, to, to make the Irish judge say, right, we'll have to refer that to the European Court of Justice. So it kept us out of prison. But the case trundled on for seven or eight more years. We were declared bankrupt at various what? points. Years. Uh, yeah, we won on the legal point in the end at Euro- in the European Court, but lost on the on, on at the facts because the court said, yeah, you've a right to give information about another legal service in another member state, but only if you've a commercial link to that st- to that service. And obviously we had no link with the clinics. Okay. We were simply giving the information. So it was one of those. It's now regarded as a very interesting legal case. It established an important point of European law. Yeah. But for us, it had this impact on our lives for years. All the, the four of us I can totally Trinity imagine. and the other officers in UCD and USI who were also in court. I just like I think it's it's really interesting what you're saying, like about how law, like it really is how you perceive the law, really, Absolutely. isn't it? Yeah, you know, perception it's so is everything. Yeah, and I've always been fascinated, you know, as a as a law student, as a legal practitioner, as a legal academic, which I was also for many years. You know, I just love the way law. It, it's a it's a political construct. Yeah. Law. I mean, people think oh, the law law is sort of immutable. It's up there in stone, and far from it. You can tweak it and interpret it, and you can mm-hmm. uh, adapt it. And obviously, in in the Oireachtas, we're you know we have the privilege and the honor of making law, which, yes. you know, again, it's, to me, is fascinating. I love that nuts and bolts. It's a very practical, it's quite a technical subject, but it's fascinating. And it's at the base of it, it's about human ideas and politics, you know. It's like, I, I love the way it's, it, you know, it obviously influences society, what you're doing in the Oireachtas and stuff like that. And you with your, your law um, credentials, I mean, and getting involved with labour. Can you yes. just talk me through how all that happened and how you chose Labour to be like, was was your mum a member of the party? How was it that you felt that you were best placed going with them and using oh, yeah. all your knowledge? Well, they're, they're exactly. And it was a different time. But I did get involved with Labour in college. So my mum came from a family that was like so many Irish families split between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Always, uh, not always. always. Well, I think it's slightly changing, but we'll get That's to that in a second. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the history, you know. She, yeah. had, she had relatives who'd fought on each side and so on uh, in, in uh, the War of Independence. But um, she herself became very attracted to the ideas of Labour, the writings of James Connolly. And again, that influenced me. And when I went to Trinity, also, there was a very active Labour society. And uh, at the time, Labour were again very much to the fore on um, on women's rights, on LGBT rights, pushing, pushing for divorce, for example, at a time, again, extraordinarily, when we still didn't have legal divorce, pushing for contraception rights. And of course, Mary Robinson herself had been a very strong Labour 
labour activist for a long time. So that was really what what drove me or motivated me to join labour. Um, and, you know, I was very active in the Labour Society. I was chair of it in Trinity and I was active in the Socialist Society. We tried to bring together um, all sorts of voices from the left. The left was then, as it remains, unfortunately, <laughs> quite fragmented. Yeah. And I've always believed in, you know, strongly in collaboration across the left. So at one time, a group of us tried to set up a, a Labour Green uh, alternative, like yeah. a coal- you know, a merged party oh, that yeah. would be Remember environmentalist that, and socialist. Because mm-hmm. to me, those are the two big, powerful visions that we need to have for the future to make a, a better, more equal society. So it was f- Labour and Green for me was always the, the sort of the, the, the motivation. But um, but, you know, I've stuck with Labour ever since. It's also mm. for me the part because it's the party of the trade union movement. And that's hugely important. I've always been a well, student union and then trade union yeah. member. And it's that idea of the collective, collective solidarity. That's the only way you achieve change. You know, I was briefly an independent and, you know, independence it's in hard politics, to make a, ma- a it's massive difference. It's hard to make a difference. Right? You know, you're your single voice. You can only yeah. really achieve change through through collective action mm-hmm. and collective solidarity. And certainly that's the vision on the on the left and for social democrats, which I am. I do think like it's something that over the years working as in journalism over the years that I've kind of realized that people get involved in politics with an ideal and they have all these ambitions, but once they get in there, they see the red tape. And they see how difficult it is. And it's it's so hard when you don't have the voices behind you, really, isn't it? Yeah, so you do need, exactly. So you need people, you need to bring people with you on the journey. So through all the many referendum campaigns and election campaigns I've been involved in, you know, I've really learned that. You need to bring people with you. It's not enough to sort of stand on the sidelines and shout. And there's some people in politics who'll always be happy to do that yeah. and never to get their hands dirty. But actually... To make change, you have to be willing to engage with others to, yes, to compromise. It shouldn't be a dirty word if that's necessary to achieve change. So when I was in the Shannon and I was proud to be a senator for 14 years, um, I brought in, I got more of my private members, which were opposition bills, brought into law than any other senator but through collaborative work. Yeah. You know, I remember going to Mary Harney, for instance, when she was health minister. I was a mere backbench opposition senator. <laughs> and I said, I really want to bring this law in. I'd been working with Akidwa, the African women, migrant women. Forum, uh, we wanted to see female genital mutilation made a specific crime in Ireland. It had mm-hmm. been done elsewhere. I had got the legislation drafted. I went to her. We work. I worked with her. I worked with opposition and government women. Actually, we brought together women particularly, and we got it brought into law. So that was the first bill I got passed. But mm-hmm. after that, I found if you work collaboratively, if, if you make persuade, you know, if you can persuade people and bring them with you, and particularly if you can bring numbers with you, yeah. if you can <laughs> actually, yeah, yeah, it's always in num- numbers in politics. So, you know, for a time, the Shannon, you know, there was a minority mm. government. And so we were able to use a bit more leverage. So it, it's about really work collaborate, co- collaboration to achieve change, which you can do in politics. So the red tape can be frustrating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it's about also sticking to your vision, being clear about what you want to achieve, but also seeing a pathway to achieve it. So the same then with repeal and with marriage equality, you know, because I was very involved in those campaigns nationally. And uh, again, it was about being collaborative, reaching out to people, telling stories and bringing people with you on that kind of pathway to change minds. I saw it happen so effectively. Yeah, I think that's the thing, like, um, I suppose when people can actually put themselves in the position um, of the person or that's that's when minds get changed and stuff like that. And that's what you seem to do pretty well. Of all the, the things that you've you've brought in, all the, the legislation that's been changed, all the, the, the different referendums you've worked on, 
you must have something that was a real passion project and something you're extremely proud of. Well, repeal is, yeah. was, I suppose, the project that drove, motivated me to rem- get politically active. To re- well, not to get politically active originally, but to remain in politics. Yeah. And women's rights, you know, gender equality. These are absolute passions for me. I was proud to chair the Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality. And we've put forward a whole range of proposals now to government that we're hoping to see brought in. But repeal was key for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that women couldn't access laws, it couldn't access legal termination of pregnancy in Ireland. That was a huge um, restriction on women's mm-hmm. rights and women's ability to live our lives. And to me, that achieving that change was massive in 2018. I was really proud to play a part in that. At a local level, I was really proud to get a school set up, actually, a multi-denominational oh, school. I was one of the parents involved in setting up the fantastic Canal Way Educate Together in Dublin 8, which is now a thriving school community. I Yeah, so, I've actually heard yeah, of it. It's yeah, in yeah, high it's, demand. Oh, it is, it is. <laughs> These, yeah. Uh, yeah, Educate Together, they're popping up and people are loving Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, you know, and then, you know, I'm very proud of other mm. smaller changes like making um, making it legal for humanists to conduct legal wedding ceremonies. That was a really happy piece of law I got brought in Amazing. You know, in the teeth of opposition and giving freelance workers collective bargaining rights, a really important piece of law that, again, I worked collaboratively uh, with my colleague Jed Nash in Labour and others then in government to get in. So, you know, these are the sort of things that I'm really proud of. But I'm really proud of Labour. I'm really proud now of being the leader of a party that has such a, an amazing track record on progressive social and economic rights mm. and that's always stood for equality and for collective solidarity. So we're hoping to grow the party further. You know, there's been many ups and downs. but we'll Of course. Um, I want to ask you, obviously, the with repeal and stuff and you're talking about the gender equality, like it's not just about women. It's no, a, it's, it's just not. as important for men, right? Well, gender equality is hugely important for men too, and that's often mm. missed. You're quite right, and and you know, I used to work in criminal defence for a long time as a barrister, and you really do see there, you know, the dis the disadvantage men, particularly men from disadvantaged backgrounds, are facing. This, you know, the vast majority of of those who are uh, convicted of criminal offences, those who are in prison, are are men, young men, often young men from working class backgrounds, and you see how disadvantage works. Uh, works uh, and gender is a huge part of that and you know criminologists and I used to teach criminology great subject really interesting <laughs> but you know one of the there used to be these questionnaires why are so few women committing crime and it's the wrong question we need to ask why so many men committing crime what is it about the way we're conditioning young boys yeah. you know that they that they are more likely to be at risk of offending of at risk of getting drawn into criminality because we know there are pathways into criminality sure nobody very few people commit a crime out of the blue you tend to see warning signs right from the start uh, and you see it you know even at preschool stage so it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons we're really fighting to see you know better uh, universal access to childcare and early years education because it's a way of bringing children out of disadvantage or poverty yeah and ensuring more equality Absolutely so makes sense. But you're right about gender. So, so you, you find, you know, gender works against men too. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating because I don't know if it's because I'm a woman that, you know, you do get fixated on the inequalities and the disproportionate, um, you know, I suppose, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the things that men get that we don't get. Like, yes. the, you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, what's the the salary gap and stuff like that you know that when a woman stops gender pay gap gender pay gap that's the word I'm looking for things like that that you kind of get fixated on that but you don't think about the other side of the coin well exactly and that's what I I think that's it so so the gender pay gap is one area where women are glaringly discriminated against so annoying in (laughs) in politics like it's extraordinary that in 2023 less than one quarter of our TDs are women only 20 my election brought us up to the dizzy height of 23% we're so poorly represented (laughs) in parliament and often because you know you've women 
who are leaders of political parties and opposition now. So often people think, oh, no, women are well represented in the doll. We're really not. Yeah. You just look at the mass arrays of TDs and you realise it's still so few. 37 women out of 160 TDs. So that's where women are, are a disadvantage. But if you look at crime statistics, yeah. as I've said, or prison statistics, that's where you see men are grossly overrepresented. So there's something wrong, therefore, for men too, with the way we're conditioning boys. And it is about conditioning, I believe, about yeah. environment. Um, it's not something that's innate, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, men are disadvantaged often when it comes to father's rights too. You know, let's see some more recognition of fathers. I thought paternity leave was a hugely important yes. innovation yeah. because it's so important that men's role as fathers is recognised. Unmarried fathers as well. Like I know quite a few men who are, you know, no longer in relation where they they have children and they've literally had to find tooth and nail. Yeah, I hear that too. And yeah. one of the th- changes we've recommended for the Gender Equality Committee is to see changes to our constitution to enable recognition of the family in a broader sense. Because mm-hmm. currently it's only the married marital family, the family based on marriage. In other words, a yeah. husband, husband and wife or two uh, or two partners who are same sex who are married. Because obviously, fab- fabulously in 2015 we legalized uh, marriage equality. But if you're not married, whether you're heterosexual or or a gay couple, you don't have the same constitutional rights. And that's one of the issues that we really do have to address. Yeah. So we want to see a constitutional referendum on that. Yeah. Um, I think I, I wanted to, like, the world is kind of in a weird place right now. And there's a lot of, like, obviously with the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East and stuff that's been going on in Syria. I just wonder, like, as someone who has worked in politics for so long, do you think if there were more women in uh, positions of power that we would be in the kind of place we are now or do you think like it would make a you know is this driven by money or do you think women could could bring some sort of empathy to the table that maybe isn't there at the moment I think it does make a difference when we see more women in politics. I think you see um, women coming through in greater numbers in countries where there's been gender quotas in place. And I really pushed for the gender quota law, which did make some difference, but not enough. And we're hoping to see more change next year with the next elections. But look, you know, would it make a difference in war? I'd love to think it would. There used to be a saying in the financial crash uh, in the noughties that if it had been the layman sisters, not the layman brothers, they wouldn't (laughs) have gone to the wall. And certainly there did seem to be something about that testosterone fueled craziness uh, in the boom years that may well have contributed to the crash. You know, I suppose we can't honestly say that women would be uh, that, you know, a collective mass of women would be more empathetic. But what we can say is that without having, you know, representative um, numbers of women in politics, politics is is not representative. We've put it like this to say Ireland is an unfinished democracy if we have so few women uh, like that you know, unfinished, unfinished democracy, democracy. Yeah. our parliament our Oireachtas is not representative of the people wow. you know because yeah. only, because 51% of us are women and yet only 23% less than one in four of our TDs so we do need to change that you know the, the wars are utterly horrific I mean the mm. ongoing crisis in, in the Middle East and of course in Ukraine you know it's something we've really been strong on in Labour I personally feel so strongly about it. My father's family are from the Czech Republic. Um, my father came to Ireland as a very young child, as a refugee from uh, what was happening there. And my grandfather had fought in the Czech resistance and was imprisoned by the Nazis. So we've a long, you know, we've more direct yeah. link to, um, to I suppose, what, what Russia has done uh, in across Central and Eastern Europe than many other families. So, uh, so you know, the war in Ukraine 
appalling. But now to see also middle, the Middle East and, you know, ongoing conflicts elsewhere, too, in Syria and elsewhere. It's, it yeah, is it's, heartbreaking. It's tragic to see it. So what we need is, is more leaders who are willing to take risks for peace. And it's what I've been saying about compromise. And I think it's certainly no coincidence, I would say, that the, the, polit- the political leaders who've driven war, like Netanyahu in, in Israel, like Putin in Russia, these are uh, like Assad in Syria. These are all men, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't deny it. Yeah. It might sound like a silly question, considering like we've just been talking for so long about your political career and your political aspirations and stuff like that. But if you weren't doing that, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming you'd still be in Trinity. I would. And I really miss my students. Would I've, you ever I've, go back to it? I would love to, but I've stepped out of it completely. I took a, I resigned from Trinity when I was elected leader of the party in 2022. Okay. It was just I want to I want to give it my all. I really want to to, you know, I'm looking for and we're recruiting, especially women, <laughs> especially younger women to run for politics. If you feel passionately about issues, it's really important to step up and step out there. And women typically need much more encouragement. I know mm. I had to wait. I waited to be asked. Yeah. Women wait to be asked. You Men waited don't. to be asked. I waited to be asked. Looking I'm actually back, surprised hearing that. I didn't run for politics until a man asked me to. I know. And, wow. and looking who back, was that? It was John Rogers. It was John Rogers. <laughs> okay. He was a very senior figure in Labour and also was at the time and also now a senior counsel. John, if you're listening, thanks very much. Uh, so <laughs> thanks, John. <laughs> thanks, John. And even in in uh, in the students' union, it was it was actually my male comrades in the socialist part society and the labor society who encouraged me to run i had a looking back interestingly the, the students union president before me mark little was a hugely uh, mm. hugely uh, uh, important uh, encourager of me to run so you know it, it is but it is it remains a truism it remains a cliche that women wait to be asked and you know over the last year since i've become leader um, I've rung so I've spoken with so many women tried to encourage so many women to run and it is it, it, women take more encouragement because we don't have we're not as confident about ourselves. Right. I wrote a report some years ago in Women in Politics that led to the gender quotas. And we talked about the five C's that hold women back. And people love this now. They talk e- endlessly <laughs> about the five C's. Lack of cash, gender pay gap. Lack of childcare. Yeah. Huge issue. Massive issue. Uh, old boys culture. Okay. And lack of confidence. And it's the la- those are the four C's. And they hold women back across journalism, across law. But there's a fifth C in politics we call the candidate selection process, which is also oh. very... Restrictive tends to favour the incumbent, tends to favour typically the older man who's been going to party meetings. And this is true of all parties, by mm-hmm. the way, it's not unique to anyone. This is who's going to party to party meetings in smoke filled rooms for yeah. many years, you know. So we, we need to be changed our candidate selection procedures nationally with, you know, across all parties with the gender quota law that says mm-hmm. parties must select at least 30 uh, percent, going up now to 40 percent of each of each gender. So it effectively put a 60 percent cap on men, you know, <laughs> and parties. Parties, <laughs> parties that don't comply lose half their state funding. So it's a massive stick. Yes. So look, you know, the gender quota law changed that. But the four other C's remain cash, confidence, childcare, culture. And it's really hard to change those. You can bring in childcare laws. We can change gender pay gap. Good to see laws on that. But the culture and the confidence piece, really hard to it's change. And that's why women wait of, to be asked. So, yeah. you know, so uh, so I, I was asked if I hadn't been asked and I hadn't run, I guess I would still be teaching. And I'd miss, I miss my students. I miss my research and I was lucky enough to be able to combine that with criminal practice which mm. I also loved so um, with your daughters uh, you've mentioned you've two daughters um, earlier on I mean as a mum 
do you see a difference now with the, the confidence maybe they exude compared to what you were like at their age? I think younger women generally are more confident now and it's mm. brilliant to see. And I would have seen it with my students when I was teaching um, that, young, you know, women have been, have been outnumbering men in law schools across the country for many years now. Yeah. And that's really good to see. And the legal profession, like many other professions, has become increasingly feminized through the lower and middle ranks. We're still seeing fewer women getting making it to the top. And again, some years ago, because I like doing research on these things, I did research with colleagues in Trinity on, uh, we called it gender injustice. Get it? Okay. Gender injustice. <laughs> um, it was the first. But that's yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, it was like good, that. isn't it? We published it in, we published it in 2003. And uh, at the time, we found significant gaps for women's career progression in the mid to late 30s. Why? Women having children. And it right. was that. So it was so actually my labor, British Labour colleague Stella Creasy calls it the motherhood gap, that it's not so much. It, it's not just women that are facing obstacles to career progression, particularly, but it's when women have children that mm. the obstacles become most evident because women taking time out absolutely rightly and justifiably yeah. to uh, care for children or sometimes for older relatives as well, that, that is is at a crucial point in a career. It absolutely hundred percent agree on that because when I had my son, that's exactly what happened. I took the foot off the gas for a couple of years. I, I cut back the hours I was working, so reduced money, all that kind of stuff. Um, increased reliance on on someone else for for you know money and and sustenance, whatever. But I think um, when I then went to try and get back into my career, it was really challenging. It was really because there was more people had come up the ranks behind me that things had practices had changed all that kind of thing I mean did you take time out when you had your kids oh I did and like how did you get back into the swing of it I took time out for sure yeah I took maternity leave and um and I was I was so fortunate for, for I was working in Trinity. Trinity has great maternity leave policies. We've improved them actually, yeah. though, because one of the things I learned was how hard it is when you come back in after leave. So to very get difficult. Back, like you say about the foot off the gas. Yeah. Your foot needs to get back on the gas and in academic work, particularly on research. And mm-hmm. that's where you lose out. So we've now brought in reduced or Trinity have um, because of a lot of us pushing. They brought, you know, there's, there's a recognition that you need to. It give people give women space coming back off leave to work back up to a point where they're research active because otherwise you lose out on promotion and so Absolute for instance sense. you reduce admin and teaching burden so yeah. but we can learn from that across other professions too where it's not enough to say well you've had your maternity leave straight back in 100% very difficult to do that mm. and that's why so many women end up running going part time or reduced hours or or just taking further leave because it's very hard to come back in 100% and the other thing we need to do is extend paternity leave so that men are also so that we're equalizing yeah. it upwards if you like that men have also got that opportunity to spend time because it is a g- wonderful to spend time with oh, your of course, kids of course absolutely. but men need to be given that opportunity too so that it's not always the woman who's who's seen as having taken the time out mm-hmm. uh, I must say other also just in the Oireachtas you know I was so lucky that women before me had fought and won a creche in the Oireachtas and that was hugely important a workplace yeah. creche yeah. that could take a, a baby part time so that for instance so that I could come back incrementally rather than yes. again coming back taking full I could you know in politics you cannot take a full maternity leave mm-hmm. you just can't if you want to be re-elected and that's of course, the reality people might or, not see, or, they might say well, oh she's on maternity but really yeah, you're still working behind yeah. the scenes well can I say that now again things have improved and colleagues yeah. of mine I mean my wonderful colleague Senator Rebecca Moynihan has had a baby we've seen other women in the Oireachtas now increasingly have babies of course, I mean, Helen so McEntee rare becoming, Helen McEntee yeah, that was and actually now women do take maternity leave so I want to correct yeah. that it should be perfectly possible in politics to take full maternity <laughs> 
maternity leave. It certainly wasn't when I had mine because it was just so rare. Mm. It's changing. It's changing and it's changing very much for the better. But there also needs to be provision for women to be able to come back in incrementally if you if if you want to and if you need to, because that's often the best way. So, uh, you know, you can leave. Uh, so the Oireachtas creche enabled that uh, yeah. part, a part time creche. And again, often creches and childcare facilities didn't facilitate that. But again, in Ireland, we're so poorly f- served for creches. It's one thing as a constituency TD in mm. Dublin Bay South. It's not unique to my constituency. So many parents contacting me. They cannot get childcare. Oh. Creches have closed. Yes. Um, there's a huge waiting list for creches that I think are there. Particularly in Dublin as well. There's so many new housing estates and stuff like that that have sprung up everywhere. And the schools and the childcare facilities in these areas, yeah, they're not are lacking. They're not so keeping up with. So we need a proper universal system of childcare where the state guarantees. We've said there should be a Neve Brannock moment, you know, mm. uh, after our wonderful edu- former Labour education minister, you know, that you every child is guaranteed an early year's place. It would be a game changer. Yeah. But you have it in other European countries. Just the same we? way. Yeah. Why can't we just say if you have a child, that child is guaranteed two years, three years preschool mm. before they go to primary school because we're now so used to child's children being guaranteed primary and secondary but secondary education only came in in the 60s as a guarantee for children yeah. we need to make that change because it would make a huge difference for, for mothers in the workplace yeah. and hopefully for fathers too <laughs> of course um, I suppose the thing that struck me there which you were talking about going back to work after having your kids and stuff like that like you always it's the kind of career that you always have to be on in some respects because you're representing people and they need your ear and you know what would you say would be the the attributes the qualities of a, a perfect po- like political candidate <laughs> someone who you know like I, I don't think I would have the stomach for it because I, I do need to switch off and people you know if they're in my face too frequently it can be quite I think you'd be brilliant Sarah <laughs> Jane and I'm going to recruit yeah. you now <laughs> Um, I know I don't think there is any typical person in politics and I suppose our view of what is a politician has yeah. changed over the years you know it would have been very much seen as a male domain you know as I've mm-hmm. said unfortunately still too that's still too much the case but increasingly we're changing the um, the perception of mm-hmm. what a politician is and who a politician is you know we should have political representation from all walks of life from mm-hmm. you know those of all ages from ethnic minorities from the traveller community from obviously LGBT community as well as having a parliament that's representative on on a gender basis too um so i think you know what but what are the attributes it has to be a pa- i think a passion for issues and for ideas and for mm-hmm. wanting to see changes made whether they're changes at local level and obviously the local elections are all in mm-hmm. our minds next year or changes at a national level but i must say since i've been elected a td in in 21 what i absolutely love is being a representative and just representing people's views representing my constituents i'm so honored you know, people stop me on the street and ask me to, yeah. you know, fix the stuff you're working. Yes. Or, yeah. And it could be a national issue. It could be an issue about a pothole on the street. But, you know, these are issues that matter to people. It could be issues about parks and green spaces and childcare facilities, a huge one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but it's such an honour to be able to help people to support and represent and bring forward ideas and make changes. And I think sometimes, you know, there's so much in the media about the toxic abuse that women politicians tend to suffer online and so on yeah you know that we can become too negative about it it's an incredible honor to be elected to represent your community it's absolutely incredible and I love it I enjoy it immensely I enjoy, I love going to residence meetings to political campaign meetings mm-hmm. and I think for you know all the women I know who are political reps who've run for election or are elected 
that passion really jo- joins us and the men too. But I think we need to talk that up more and yeah. say to people, it's such an incredible thing to do, you know. To, oh, without a shadow it, of a doubt. Yeah, like, I mean, and the, the excitement also of, of the political, you know, the, every day is completely different. I don't know, you know, we'll be, I'll be in the door <laughs> today. I you know, we don't know what will transpire. You know, there'll be issues we'll be debating. You know, we may see changes made. There's compromises. We've, la- you know, we've labour motions all the time on different issues that we mm. try to get government to move on and we, we you know and then we see government taking up issues that we've raised and running with them and you see changes coming in as a result so you know it's this it's the process is, is itself exciting yeah but you can't lose sight also of what motivates you to stay in it a lot of people nowadays like I know we were talking briefly earlier on about you know legacy votes and stuff like that people just going for what their parents voted for uh, traditionally, the family supports different parties or whatever. But more and more these days, young people in particular are starting to find their own voices. They're, you know, obviously with the advent of social media and stuff like that, they're being exposed to an awful lot more real life, you know, real time events that are going on around the world. I mean, I, I suppose, why, how would you, dis- how would you come to the conclusion about who you should vote for? Like, what's the, what you, should you be looking at local affairs? Should you be looking at the country as a whole? Should international affairs you know, should you be looking at just your own bank balance or, you know, like, I mean, what, how, how do you decide who to vote for? It's really interesting question. And I'm always intrigued when we're out canvassing, as we mm. do every week in the constituency, uh, when we're out canvassing and talking to people indoors or when I'm traveling around the country mm-hmm. with our Labour candidates, meeting people, what motivates people to vote a particular way? Yeah. And what you find is there's no one factor uh, at the, mo- you know, at the moment. Uh, issues and international issues are huge for people. Obviously, yeah. I, I must say we're getting an outpouring of uh, emotion and angst and distress about the ongoing war in Gaza. So that is clearly mo- so people are motivated, I think, to vote for one party or another because of that stance, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, environmental issues motivate younger people, particularly to vote for parties they see as taking envir- the environment seriously. Mm-hmm. And I hope we in Labour will always continue to do that, as I've always done. Uh, but, you know, psych- cycling, psych- I'm impassioned cyclist I cycle every day amazing and I, I wish I had that there's a huge, <laughs> well, you know, if, if, when you live you know when you live within a 10 minute 10 minutes of Leinster House it's huge it's actually quicker yeah. to cycle but uh and I cycle all around the constituency and cycling I see as a huge again a huge motivator for people mm-hmm. to vote for for candidates or parties that are strong on cycling at local and national level mm-hmm. um childcare huge issue at the moment you know so yeah. again part um, I think a lot of particularly young parents parents of you know young children will be looking to see well what party is strong in childcare mm-hmm. so you find huge diff- huge range of different so the people aren't necessarily loyal to a party anymore it's no, more no it's the, quite volatile yeah. I think you're right about the c- civil war politics have gone mm-hmm. the fact that I suppose Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have gone into government together for the first time. I mean, that was, again, a huge shift in politics in 2020. Yeah. And we haven't yet seen how that will impact voting patterns in the next general election because yeah. that hasn't yet happened. But I think it will have a, it will make a difference too, you know. And I think we're seeing people really exercised about housing, of course. I mean, that's the yes. biggest issue for my daughter's generation, biggest domestic issue. The environment, mm-hmm. I think, must be the biggest um, international issue. But, the, but housing, provision of housing, affordable places to rent, or by that's something that's really motivating younger people and voting and again looking at what party has policies on that um, so 
but you know, but equally in local elections, you find different motivators. In local yeah. elections, people may well vote for somebody who has helped them out literally to make their street a better street. Who's yeah. given, you know, who's done something on greening, who's provided <laughs> Putting the cycle path. <laughs> yeah, this is the sort of thing that will motivate people in local elections. So it's yeah. not necessarily the bigger issues in local elections, but housing is certainly the biggest domestic issue currently. Mm-hmm. International issues are huge too, though, and will remain so, I think. The last question I wanted to ask you, Ivana, before you go is your career has been so varied from your teaching days, from the student union right through politics, Shannon. How would you rate it? Give give your career out of 10. I know it's not over. You've got lots of ambitions, lots of ambitions, lots of ambitions. But I mean, so far out of 10, what would you say you give your career? I've never been asked that and I don't I honestly don't know and I'm just going to randomly pick the number seven which I think is quite a good number for somebody who is as as you've said far from uh, far from coming near the end of a political career indeed in political terms happily I'm still quite young so that's (laughs) especially as I've only been elected to the doll in the you know two years Mm -hmm. ago so uh, so I guess seven in the sense that you know I'm really proud of achievements I've had I'm really proud to have become leader of, of my party and to have been elected a TD in Dublin Bay South but I've still a huge amount more to do it's still a huge amount more change to Mm. make we need to see the state stepping up you know to see uh, in housing and childcare we need to see those left left wing centre left social democratic and socialist uh principles put into effect to make change for people's lives to ensure that we have really quality for children preschool that we have really decent provision of housing of health care of education so all the views and passions that we have in labor that I have personally you know I want to see those achieved so that's why I certainly yes. wouldn't give, I wouldn't give it more than seven <laughs> at this stage but I think for anyone at the stage in their lives or in their political careers I'm at you look you know job satisfaction oh I love what I do yeah you know, it's challenging Challenging for sure. It's long hours for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many ups and downs, as I've said, but, you know, I'm an optimist uh, naturally and I've always believed in the mantra onwards and upwards. And I think, you know, you have to keep looking to see, well, where can I make progress? Where can I change if stuff mm-hmm. has gone wrong? Where can, where do I change that? And how do we make things better? And I think that's been the driving force and will remain so. So seven for now, Sarah Jane, but <laughs> I, I may come back to you. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us today, Vanna. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Evoke Inspire Her Business Empowering Women in Diverse Professions podcast sponsored by hermoney.ie Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and expert insights on thriving in various industries. Remember, financial empowerment begins with knowledge. hermoney.ie helps you take control of your financial future so why not visit hermoney.ie for more information. Until next time, stay empowered and inspired.